Plant-based eating brings energy and vitality to individuals, but what does it do for our planet? I sat down with author Corey Davis to find out more about how our diets are connected to broader environmental issues and why the smallest choices can make the biggest impact. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. We are part of the ecosystem. And if we can promote diverse crops, we will be adding to biodiversity and increasing the resilience of our food system to things like disease. I love that you said we are part of the ecosystem because I think a lot of times humans view themselves as separate from and this ecosystem is something that is for us. Yes, um, it's, a, it's a very human-centric view where, where we tend to remove ourselves from nature, not realizing that not only are we part of nature, but we, we rely on those natural processes immensely for our own spiritual health and physical health as well. I just submitted one of my theory papers for my master's in applied positive psychology or MAP degree that I'm working on at the University of Pennsylvania. I recorded a podcast a couple weeks ago with my Mapster colleague, Eileen, and we talked about building a flourishing community and what our immersion week at the school was like. So you should check that one out. There's been a massive shift in my time management strategy since I started this master's program. They told us to allocate 20 to 30 hours a week for schoolwork, and I thought that maybe that didn't apply to me, and it turns out I was wrong. <laughs> so I've been spending a lot of time on school Basically, every moment that I have that I'm not with my kids, I've even had to reduce my training to accommodate school. And this is one of the things that I mean whenever I talk about intentional imbalance, which is something you might have heard me talk about on this podcast. What that means is that it's impossible to balance everything equally all the time. Sometimes you're going to have some primary goals that are going to mean that some of your other goals might need to not get the attention that they're used to getting. And you have to be okay with that decision. And that's the hardest part. So in terms of periodizing my goals, the summer was really dedicated to recording a lot of podcasts. Most of the podcasts that you're listening to were recorded back in the summer where I recorded many, many, many shows so that if I got really busy with school, I would have a little bit of a runway and not be stressed out about the podcast. It was also dedicated to racing. I did a lot of racing this summer and I really enjoyed it. And now this fall especially is dedicated to school, figuring out how to manage my time, getting better at writing papers. I have to write, I think it's 12 papers this semester, which is a lot. And all of them have to be APA-sided, well-researched, and well-written. So this has been a great opportunity for me to exercise my critical thinking muscle, to continue to develop my writing skills, which I've done a lot for this podcast, as most of my solo podcast episodes are research projects that I create myself. And I'm really enjoying the growth that I've been getting through this process. That said, growth is a wonderful sounding thing, but it's not always comfortable and it never is easy. So we always think about, well, growth sounds amazing and that should always be our goal. But it's something to keep in mind that if you are going through periods of growth all of the time, you might actually be a little bit too uncomfortable. So think about how you are striving for more in your life. Sometimes we need short periods of time where we are treading water a little bit to let ourselves recover from the growth that we are undergoing. So that's something that I need to start thinking about is how I am going to incorporate a little bit of rest into my work structure with all of this amazing work that I get to do. The paper that I just got to write was about habits and self-regulation and about how that impacts our moral character from, uh, from William James and what it means to have a golden mean of vice and virtue from Aristotle, or how we pursue optimal experiences or flow, as Mihai Csikszentmihalyi would say. I'm hoping to fire up the newsletter again. It used to be a weekly newsletter that I consistently sent out, which was another way that I was exercising my writing muscle. 
But now that I'm in school, I haven't been sending it out nearly as regularly as I would like. But I'm thinking about summarizing every single month the things that I'm learning in school to bring to you. So if you're interested in that, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, and I'll see what I can get cooking there for you. But go and join thousands of other people who are on my email newsletter list. That is sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And you can always just follow along on Instagram, and that is at sonyalooney. But I don't get to share my insights in depth that I like to do, and I mostly focus on mountain biking content on Instagram. So let's talk about today's podcast, something else that is a passion of mine that is near and dear to my heart, other than mountain biking adventures and the science of well-being is plant-based. I've been eating plant-based for over a decade. It's hard to believe that that's the case because it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Through that process, I had to become an expert in plant-based nutrition and what that means and how to perform on a plant-based diet. In fact, I won the world championship after I changed my diet to a plant-based diet. I've also been featured in the New York Times bestseller, The Plant-Based Athlete by Matt Frazier and Robert Cheek, if you want to pick that one up. So I was really excited to sit down with Corey Davis today to chat about plant-based for environmental sustainability. If you listen to the show, you've heard me talk at length with many experts on why you should eat plant-based or slant towards a plant-based diet for optimal health and longevity. But today we are going to be focused on environmental sustainability. Corey's journey towards advocating for a more eco-friendly world began with his deep passion for animal rights, driving him to explore the interconnectedness of various sectors within the realm of sustainability. His wealth of knowledge backed by his impressive credentials, including an MBA, a master of science, and a professional agrologist designation, which requires a four-year degree in environmental studies and agriculture all made for an insightful discussion on the convergence of natural resource management, intercultural relations, and animal rights activism. Together, we delved into the profound impact of individual choices on our planet's health. Ecosystems are resilient to climate change, but human activities like deforestation and animal agriculture have profound negative impacts. We talked about the impact of large agricultural industries and power of individual consumer choices in driving production, citing the inventory management system used by grocery stores. A lot of us think that we are just a drop in the bucket and our actions aren't going to impact the climate or make a difference. And this is a a podcast that tells you that they do make a difference. And as an aside, a while back, I recorded a podcast episode with Drawdown.org's executive director, Jonathan Foley, which also goes into detail about many different sectors of climate change and how you can help. I made sure that that is linked up in the show notes, and I highly encourage you to listen to that episode as well. So let's take a second to talk about the power of plant-based living. We discuss the environmental benefits of embracing plant-based protein sources such as tofu, lentils, and peas, which require significantly less water than their animal-based counterparts. Those staples are a regular part of my diet and my children's diet. It's remarkable how such small dietary shifts can result in measurable reductions in water usage and pollution. Something that people worry about is that the food won't taste good if they eat lentils or tofu, and I can assure you that it does. And there are so many great recipes out there. I've had many great guests to share the recipes, and one of them is linked up in the show notes. As a quick reference, I would say download the Oshi Glows app or get any of those cookbooks. All of those recipes, including the desserts, are delicious, healthy, and easy to make. So perhaps the most eye-opening moment of our conversation was when Corey revealed the staggering potential of a global shift towards plant-based diets and rewilding lands currently used for pasture and animal feed crops. The numbers were astounding. The potential to sequester a remarkable 16 years worth of carbon from our atmosphere and a 66% chance of meeting the Paris Agreement goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This is so incredibly important and so profound. The thing that I liked about Corey is that he is pretty moderate and he, I listened to him on other podcasts. He is the first person to call it out if somebody misquotes the data. He also recommended the website ourworldanddata.org, ourworldanddata.org. Emily Oster, who has also been a podcast guest, has recommended this website too. So can we make an impact? And if so, how do we do it? Tune in to hear from Corey Davis and learn how we change our future and the future of our planet. Some key takeaways today are plant-powered proteins, opting for plant-based proteins, and making sure that you're getting enough protein where you can check out the book, Plant-Powered Protein. And Corey Davis is one of those authors, along with Vasanto Molina and Brenda Davis. 
And that's right. Brenda Davis is Corey's mom. She is one of my very good friends. She is an award-winning and well-known plant-based dietitian. And she has been on this podcast multiple times, and she will be back on the podcast to talk about the nutrition aspect of plant-powered protein. And as another aside, I'm actually in that book as well on the plant-based athlete section, and that was a really nice surprise. Corey and I talked about the beef and dairy dilemma and how cutting back on these products can significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, water usage, and land usage. And again, we're saying cut back. We're not saying you have to eliminate it completely. And I think that a lot of people think that everything has to be all or none, but really small actions make a big difference. We talked about collective impact and how small choices we make every day towards a more sustainable future matter. I don't want to give it all away. So we're going to get into the podcast in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about a habit that I do every single day. There are many habits I do daily, but one of them is taking a multivitamin. And as I mentioned, I do eat a plant-based diet and I aim for as much diversity of foods as I can, but I like having backup and that's where Prevenex comes in. All of their products, including their multivitamin, are pharmaceutical grade and tested so that the ingredients listed on the bottle are actually the things that are in the capsules. The supplement industry is not regulated by the FDA, so supplement companies can pretty much put whatever they want in the supplements and you won't know the difference. So that's why I trust Prevenex. My body is something that I try to treat with utmost respect. And since I started taking Prevenex over a year ago, I noticed a lot more energy. My husband noticed it as well, and now he takes it every single day. And he was somebody that would only sporadically take a multivitamin. And he feels so good taking Prevenex that he is very consistent with that. So if you're thinking, yes, this sounds good. I don't really know a lot about the multivitamin that I'm taking, or maybe you are thinking about starting to take a multivitamin, head over to Prevenex.com. Check out all their products. The multivitamin, of course, is my number one favorite, but the Immune Health Plus is also one that I've been taking, especially since my son is in preschool and it is getting to be that time of year. So use the code SONYA15, that is all lowercase SONYA15, S-O-N-Y-A 15 at checkout to get 15% off your first order. And it's also linked up in the show notes. All right, so let's dive right in. Here is Corey Davis. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. It's so fun to finally meet you as we were just talking about because I've heard about you for many years from your awesome mom. And it's it's just kind of funny to think like Brenda's your mom. And I know Brenda as Brenda and how people think about your parents and how you think about your parents. And yeah, it's just really fun. Thanks so much. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. And I'm glad that uh, you and my mom have already established a relationship. She's told me so much about you. So how did you get interested in environmental sustainability? Well, first, I've been passionate about animal rights for as long as I can remember and uh, really put that into action in 2003 to 2004 on the Compassion for Animals Road expedition. And one thing that really hit home for me was the environmental impacts of food. It just kept coming up. So I started to develop an interest in that. And in that care tour, I went around giving cooking demonstrations on environmentally friendly foods, and that kind of kicked off my thinking patterns. And then when it was time for me to go to college, I started in the social sciences, and I took ecology and biology, and I had an environment club there as well. And the link, I just kept finding that link between the environment and the food we eat. And that really compelled me to further my education in environmental sciences and environmental planning. And my career just took me there. So now a professional agrologist, where my specialty is in environmental conservation, it just seems like my life culminated to that point. Yeah. So from a, a young age, it sounds like this career and this passion has been building and it's funneled you into this becoming an agrologist. That is correct. Yeah. So I think a lot of times when people think about environmental sustainability, they don't think about all the different sectors. They think about, well, you know, I'm going to get like a low flow toilet or I'll turn the lights off or I'll recycle. Like all these things are important. But can you talk about how there's different sectors in the environmental sustainability space? Yes, those are all really good points. And I highly encourage everybody to continue minimizing their impact on the environment through low flow toilets. Don't water your lawn, recycle. All of that is really good. And I want to 
encourage people to continue doing that. But of course, there's a number of different industries that are making profound influences on ecologies in North America and indeed the, the rest of the world. And it's really difficult to start to parse out and, and create categories because a lot of these things are related to each other. Of course, the influence of fossil fuel industries on agriculture is also profound. There's a huge link there. But when I think about what is the biggest impact on our planet, that in no doubt in my mind is agriculture. No doubt in my mind. Of course, the energy sector as a whole creates the most greenhouse gas emissions, creates about 60% of all emissions on the planet. And that's no joke. And perhaps part of our future is to simplify the fossil fuel economy and our consumption patterns for that. But perhaps the single most impactful thing somebody could do making small changes in their life is by making small shifts in their dietary patterns. Of course, agriculture is a leading polluter of water, contributes significantly to greenhouse gas emissions and our ability or the landscape's ability to sequester those emissions being a massive driver of, of deforestation. It is the leading user of water resources on our planet. And you pointed out that we often talk about industry and its water use. For example, fracking in the USA, fracking uses 70 to 140 billion gallons of water a year which pales in comparison to the amount of water used for agriculture. Globally, about 24% of water use is by industry, 4% is home use, and the rest is agriculture. Two quadrillion gallons of water every single year. And the funny thing is, is that for every resource-intensive food product out there, there's alternatives that are not. Alternatives that it would be very difficult to see those kinds of reductions you could gain in your environmental impact by just switching to those alternatives. Just absolutely massive. Can you talk more specifically about some of the water use? Like you mentioned, is it two quadrillion gallons? Um, That's right. And also like how deforestation causes some of these issues? Because I think people know what those, they've heard those words, but they don't know the greater impact of what that actually means. Yeah, for sure. Well, if we want to talk about alternatives and water use, water, agriculture being the leading user of water on the planet, and you want to reduce your water footprint, well, you could go and buy those, you know, uh, low water toilets and really take shorter showers. And I suggest everybody do that um, for your local water security. But we often offset those water impacts to other communities, other countries, and everything is interrelated in the sense that it comes back to our local landscape in terms of environmental impacts. And perhaps I'll get there in a little bit, but just in short, I mean, soy milk uses under 5% the amount of water as cow's milk. Beef uses 10 times more water than tofu. and Lentils, pulses use about 30 times the amount of, of water as beef. So those are massive. In terms of deforestation, this is a really important topic because it relates back to water scarcity. Here in BC, we're in a level five drought. That's the highest level of drought. And to think that these impacts aren't global is, is ridiculous. We often talk about watershed security. Um, and I believe when we talk about watershed security, we really need to shift the culture of the population within that watershed to consume different, less water and less resource intensive products for the following reason. We deforest about 5 million hectares of land every year. About 2.1 million of that is for animal agriculture, which is the largest sector driving deforestation globally. And forest cover, and I'm sure some of your, your listeners know this, but is inextricably linked to water yield and precipitation. 
by a evapotranspiration. So that's a process by which trees absorb water through their roots and releases it through their leaves. And this increases atmospheric moisture and its cross-continental transport. So what happens on one side of the globe certainly impacts us over here as well. And what this does, this increase in atmospheric moisture, it replenishes and renews regional water cycles, especially in the um, continental interiors, but especially in the summertime when we do experience drought and we need that water for agriculture. Of course, clearing our forests not only impacts water resources in our region and, and across the globe, it impacts biodiversity. So uh, recently a paper came out showing how we've lost almost, or there's been a decline in species population by 70% since 1970, just absolutely massive. Uh, in the North Americas, we've lost 50% of our, of our grassland bird population since 1970, one in four meadowlarks. So this is a huge concern, especially when we think about ecosystems and the services they provide and how these creatures make ecosystems resilient. And we could talk about that more in depth if you like, but also coming back to water scarcity, the deforestation, how those two things are impacted. We also know water scarcity is impacted profoundly by climate change. And locally, we could see these regional climate projections showing how in many regions close to home for me in British Columbia, are going to see much less rain in the summer, which is going to increase the severity of droughts here. And so that's also related to climate change. Now, of course, with the amount of forest that, that we clear for agriculture, much of it going to pasture and animal feed crops like soy to feed chickens, what is that opportunity cost of converting carbon sink ecosystems, ecosystems that sequesters carbon, and converting them into carbon sources, ecosystems that emit carbon, like pasture for grazing and animal feed crops? And that impact can be profound. I don't think we really know what that impact is, but there was a study just a, a few years ago published in Nature Sustainability that suggested that if we were to rewild all those areas that we've converted to pasture and animal feed crops and the globe were to go plant-based, we would essentially sequester 16 years worth of carbon from our atmosphere and provide humanity a 66% chance of meeting the Paris Accord Agreement of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees that move alone. So I'm not exactly sure how accurate that is because there needs to be more research on that front. But what I can say is that the impacts are profound and we just couldn't understand what the consequences could be. David Tillman, one of the most cited ecologists, said a quote much like that. Um, and I'm paraphrasing that human beings are the most dominant force on our ecosystems and ecosystem change, and we don't know what the consequences of that are. We don't. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of that quote from The Matrix, like, humans are a virus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something people don't realize is that this deforestation isn't just for grazing land. It's, it's to grow the food to feed all of these animals, and that the water scarcity isn't the water the animals are drinking, but it's the water to grow all of these crops so that these animals have something to eat. And being aware of that and that all of that food being grown that's given to the animals could potentially be given to humans and there's people starving all over the world. That is correct. In terms of water, yeah, to, to hit closer to home in North America, I don't have the data for Canada necessarily. But in the United States, there was a really good paper published just a couple years ago in Nature Sustainability again. Nature being one of the most well-respected publishers of scientific literature in the world. What they did was they assessed river water use in, in the Western United States, and they found that um, feed crops 
for cattle and dairy, specifically irrigating those feed crops, was the largest user of river water in the United States and uh, accused that industry of um, being the leading driver of fish imperilment and water scarcity in the region. And it's ironic as many cattle ranchers have had to cull their own cows or kill their own cows in response to drought. And here in British Columbia, we are receiving a lot of media attention over the drought issues and cattle, um, trying to procure the cattle. Hey, I mean, it's a, it's a matter of animal welfare. It's our neighbors' livelihoods who are ranching the cattle, and they fear large losses in their industry if we don't support them. But what I think people don't recognize is, well, what is hay? First of all, we're trying to get all these cattle ranchers hay and sourcing it from all over. Hay is irrigated crop. In fact, it uses, if we were to take all of the sectors in Canada, uh, agricultural sectors, we've got field crops, vegetables, fruits, and hay. And hay is the second largest user of water. Wow. So hay isn't just grass out there on the fields. Hay is an irrigated crop. It takes resources. And then we roll it all up. It, it could be grass. There's some legumes, some flowers in there. And we grow, all up, grow it all up and then roll them into these big bales of hay. It actually uses, in Canada, uh, hay crops use about seven times, over seven times more water than all vegetables and fruits. So, that, so that's huge amount of water. Yeah, something that people demonize all the time are almonds. Like, well, almonds use up so much water and they do use up water, but not in comparison to eating, you know, beef or, or pork. Yeah, that's right. And nuts do use it. Nuts use a, a lot of water. It's one of the, the biggest uh, users of water in terms of crop type or requiring the amount of crop. But on a landscape level, it's not using the most water because... Of course, um, nuts you don't eat in large quantities. The typical serving size of nuts is about an ounce, right? Whereas we're serving beef, the six-ounce steak is is very common. So I don't recommend people going out and eating a steak-sized amount of nuts. It's something I sprinkle on my salad, or you have as as a general like as a snack with maybe a tiny little handful, about an ounce at a time. So I believe the impact is relatively small there. Of course, almond milk, which got a lot of attention over using almonds, doesn't actually use that much water when compared to cow's milk. The almond milk I buy, and I like to buy a variety of different plant-based milks, love soy milk, but sometimes I drink almond milk, uses about one-fourth the amount. The, the one that I use uses about one-fourth, a quarter the amount as cow's milk, whereas soy milk uses about 5%. So, however, when we look at nuts, which also it received a lot of criticism by people, right? Because vegans, they eat nuts. I don't know why it's an, a vegan issue to begin with, because everybody eats nuts. Like, How dare you eat nuts as a vegan? <laughs> I, I know. It, to me, it's not a vegan issue. It's more of a systemic issue about uh, diets of everybody. But although nut crops require lots of water, they're almost carbon neutral. So some nut crops actually sequester carbon from the environment. Some emit a tiny bit, but they are certainly the lowest emitters of carbon out of any of the crops. They don't generally emit a lot of water pollution and compared to animal products. And they don't require all that much land in relation to animal products. The one metric that they're heavy on is water. But then they provide you with a very nutrient-dense food, which you require in small amounts, and um, provides lots of fat and micronutrients as well. So I think it's a, it's a good um, part of a well-rounded diet. So... To close up this piece on water scarcity, I think that in general, with each kind of topic we tackle, I'd love to have three actionable takeaways that people can do. Because I think in general, when it comes to the environment or when it comes to what they're eating, they think, well, they're going to be doing this anyway. Like, I, 
if I stop eating, you know, or if I reduce the amount of, of animal protein that I'm consuming, um, they're still going to be killing the cows. They're still going to be like chopping down the forest. So what I'm doing isn't going to make any difference. So <laughs> number one, can you um, talk about that? And then number two, can you give a couple of things that people can do that will make a measurable difference so they could feel like they have a sense of agency here? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, the psychology of how we assess our actions impacting the environment is a difficult one for me to navigate. But what I can give is some optimism in that, you know, our supply chains, we have this just-in-time um, inventory model, right? Inventory space is so expensive. So what your grocery stores do is there's warehouses that store a lot of the products. And when a product goes over the counter, it scans in the barcode. And right then and there, it's documenting that one item has been removed from the shelf. And it's going to tell its just-in-time delivery system model to get in a new one, right? And so that's being tracked. And if you don't buy that, then they're not going to get a new one. Then they're not going to order another one for a warehouse. And so I, I truly think that our individual consumer um, power does hold sway over production. It's simple supply and demand. And over time, the supply will adjust to demand. And your personal choice could result in many animals not meeting their end for the dinner plate. And I think that's a profound impact that we have, um, really impactful. So yes, and by the way, when we normalize those behaviors and we share foods that are responsible with our friends and family that's tailored to their palates, I truly believe that creates a huge impact as well. My in-laws right now are living with me and they are hardcore omnivores. They were eating meat three times a day and um, we started having vegan dinners together and I'd make them dinners and my mother-in-law, she learned how to make vegan dinners. So she cooks for us, we cook for them. And now that we've normalized this eating habit and they got used to it and they love the food I create, they are going to take this back to China. They're from China. They're going to take this tradition of a vegan dinner back to China. And they're going to share that with their friends too, right? So that's a, I think that's a huge impact. Yeah. Um, a study that I read in Plant-Based News not all that long ago, it cited a study that looked at three different universities and they sort of flipped the lid on how they're offering food at their cafes. Plant-based options were the normal default option. So mm -hmm. rather than saying, hey, I'd like to switch out my meat patty for a veggie patty, they'd have to say, hey, I want to switch out that veggie patty for a meat patty. And what they found was astonishing by normalizing more responsible food. They found that 81% of the students opted for the plant-based option. It's a huge impact just by, no and think about how you could um, do that in your own life with your own friends and family by really tailoring the food to their taste palate, sharing it with them. I think that's really impactful. Yeah, there's certainly a ripple effect of positive habits and positive change. And it can also help people overcome some of the biases they might have, like, oh, it's not going to taste very good, or I'm not going to feel full, or I'm not going to have any energy. And whenever you can do it together, like people don't like doing things individually. We, we are pack animals. So being able to do things together can help make broader changes. Yes, I agree. And if you're interested in in minimizing or reducing your your food print, I guess we could call it. Um, <laughs> there's some really great resources. Of course, you could get my book, Plant Powered Protein, which has graphs inside, which shows how much water, how much land, uh, how much water pollution, how much greenhouse gas emissions each major protein source gives. And so if you wanted to reduce, say, greenhouse gas emissions, you could look for in that book, protein sources that minimize that impact. And there's also interactive graphs using the same data on our world in data. 
And so you could actually turn on and off different foods and use different uh, metrics as well. So that's another really good source. Of course, all that data came from the largest study on on the environmental impacts of food on the planet by Pora Nemesek in 2018, where they surveyed over, I think it was around 36,000 different farms to collect that data and a massive life cycle analysis. Yeah, that's great that there's that data. I didn't know about that website. And I I just recently got the book, Plant Powered Protein. (laughs) I forgot that I'm in the book until your mom told me, which is really cool. (laughs) And there's an entire section for plant-based athletes and talking even about certain supplements. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yeah, so we have the whole family now involved in the podcast. Yeah, so that's great that people can look at these different types of plant-based or non-plant-based sources that they that they want to eat and see what the impact is and how even one meal can make a difference. So can you just give people like say they they don't they forget or they don't go can you just say like here are the top 3 best plant-based proteins you can add in to help with water scarcity? With water scarcity of course I would say that tofu and soybeans is a fantastic source that's low on water. So are every single one of these is going to be a legume. Uh, pulses like lentils and peas. I'm mm-hmm. a big promoter of peas. We have a fantastic pea industry in Canada uh, who deserves our support. In fact, our bean industry in general is massive in Canada. We can position ourselves very well to become leaders of plant-based diets in this world because of it. For example, we supply India with a third of their lentils. Wow. That's a substantial amount of lentils. (laughs) We grow, I believe just a couple of years ago, in terms of imports for India, we had like over 60% of their imported lentils was from Canada because we have very high quality lentils here in Canada. It's size, it's consistency, everything. So certainly beans, pulses like lentils, peas, Tofu, those are all really great sources of protein that require little water use. And tofu probably and peas perhaps being some of the lowest. And just for people listening, we will be doing a nutrition-based podcast about this book as well, if you're interested in the nutritional impacts of all of these different things. But I thought it was really important to talk about the environmental impact to keep it on its own because I think some people come to plant-based diets or plant slanted diets for different reasons and then end up learning about, you know, other benefits of it. So for this is for the people who are really interested in how can I make, you know, a lighter footprint or footprint on the environment. And I love that the book that you and Vasanto Molina and that Brenda Davis wrote covers a lot of different bases. Thank you so much for that. And if I could leave folks with uh, one more strategy, I would suggest to eat a diversity of foods. I can't stress how important that is both for our own health and perhaps Brenda Vicento can or have talked about it before, but for the environment, eating diversity is really important. I believe there's about 300,000 edible plants on planet Earth. We currently cultivate over 150 of them, but really it's only a small portion of that, like a dozen plants that make up the majority of the human diet. Uh, that's huge. And it promotes these large monoculture crops, right? Um, we'll plant a few different species of plants. And within that, we're reducing the amount of subspecies, like uh, varieties of, of each plant. We're losing a lot of our heritage varieties and so forth. But what that does is it creates these huge, enormous, vulnerable crops. Imagine a disease comes into North America to and attacks corn, something that impacts corn. Well, we've just lost huge swaths of our agricultural production. Eat a variety. If we could promote agrodiversity, which as the United Nations describes is a part of biodiversity, agrodiversity Eating a diversity of different crops, diversity in your diet, contributes to biodiversity. We are part of the ecosystem. And if we can promote diverse crops, we will be adding to biodiversity and increasing the resilience of our food system to things like disease. 
I love that you said we are part of the ecosystem because I think a lot of times humans view themselves as separate from and this ecosystem is something that is for us. Yes, it's a very human-centric view where we tend to remove ourselves from nature, not realizing that not only are we part of nature, but we, we rely on those natural processes immensely for our own spiritual health and physical health as well. Not to mention things like recreation, <laughs> which I absolutely love. <laughs> but um, yeah, we are certainly part of the environment and, and it's really important to not remove ourselves so much. You know, it's really interesting that Eurocentric view of there being wild lands and then civilized lands, lands that we have taken over and, and, and manage for human needs. Prior to Europeans coming to Turtle Island, what we now call North America, indigenous people didn't really view it that way. It's a really European-centric way of viewing lands. There wasn't wild lands and then their home. The land was just their home. And I think that's really inspiring for me to, to try and uh, get myself to see things differently through different lenses. Yeah, I think that just generally speaking, a lot of us would benefit from taking a broader perspective and learning from people that may see the world different from us because there's so much to learn from them. I couldn't agree more. More, more perspectives is certainly uh, beneficial. And as we know, diversity of perspectives drives innovation. It helps people think in different ways. It's healthy for the mind. So I love to talk about pollutants now because I don't think that's something that people think about a ton. Sounds good to me. In terms of pollutants, like water pollutants, there's air pollutants, and then there's water pollutants, and then pollutants that leaches into our soils and so forth. But um, I don't think a lot of people know this, and this might be enough to just get people to think about their diet, just in this one example, about in the United States, about 18,000 people a year unfortunately die as a result of agricultural air pollution. Wow. I believe in, I, don't quote me on this, but it's around this, around 16,000 of those are related related to food that we grow. The others, more industrial agricultural products, biofuels and so forth. But 80% of, of, of deaths related to air pollution from agriculture for food are animal agriculture. And it, that just reminds me of Howard Lyman, the mad cowboy, and his story about his brother passing away related to pesticides. So there's air pollution, but there's also water pollution, perhaps the most profound impact. Nitrites or nitrates are the most ubiquitous or the most frequently found water pollutant on planet Earth. And of course, it's suggested that it's linked to cancer and all other kinds of, of human illnesses. But livestock in particular, and nitrates, sorry, that comes from manure and fertilizer, things like that, that we put onto our crops. But animal manure, manure from livestock alone contain 150 different pathogens, six of which, Campylobacter, Listeria, E. coli, Salmonella, Cryptosporidium and Giardia, I believe, responsible for about 90% of all foodborne and waterborne illnesses. Now, around the world, millions of people die every year from water pollution, and that disproportionately impacts children. Yeah, people take it for granted that we, that we can just turn on the faucet and drink clean water. We can take a shower without, like, traveling is a great way to experience other, you know, if you have the the means to do so, not everybody does, but if you do have the means to do so, you realize things that are a privilege, like getting your trash picked up or being, you know, running your toothbrush under the water to brush your teeth and not getting sick. Like those things are a privilege that make us blind to some of these things that we just might not think about because we've just never been exposed to it. That's right. It's a privilege, especially in large mun municipalities, because there's lots of communities out there that don't have water treatment options or have don't have the resources for water treatment within Canada, right? And mistakes can be made as well. It reminds me of a 
report, an expose from the nonpartisan government accountability office that or the NRDC, who took freedom of information requests from the Environmental Protection Agency in the States. And what they found was shocking as it relates to concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, where chickens and pigs live, some live their whole lives in CAFOs and where cattle end up. Of course, cattle feed on like our picturesque landscape of pastures, but in the fall, they get auctioned off to feedlots, which are essentially concentrated animal feeding operations or factory farms. Anyways, this expose found that not only are the impacts to water profound, and we could talk about that a little bit, but it disproportionately impacts low-income communities and uh, minority communities. And what they found was that millions of Americans are have their water sources in danger of dangerous levels of nitrates and other pollutants in their in their drinking water sources. So, whoa, mind blown! They found data on seventy five hundred different concentrated animal feeding operations through these freedom of information requests, which is embarrassing for the Environmental Protection Agency because there's an estimated of 17,000 CAFOs in the United States, and they only had data on 7,500 of them. Wow. And they um, wrote about a few different manure spills as well. And sorry, I don't have it in front of me, so I've got to speak off the top of my head. But, you know, in several, Minnesota, for example, absorbs about 20 different manure spills every year. And these have resulted in hundreds of thousands of fish die-offs. And this one in Illinois always stood out to me. I believe it was in 2012. It was a result of a hog farm manure spill into a riverway impacting over 20 kilometers of river or 20 miles of river. And prior to the spill, biologists actually went to this river and tested fish species and they identified nine different fish species well after this spill which killed over 150,000 fish 18,000 mussels two years after the spill occurred those biologists came back to the river back to their testing sites to identify fish species and they didn't they weren't able to identify one fish species that they identified prior to the manure spill. So these impacts are long-lasting, hugely devastating to the aquatic environment. But the thing is, what, what the NRDC found, and what we know is to be true even in Canada, is that even when everything goes as planned with your manure management and you're following legislation to the T, you're doing everything right, huge impacts can occur. And it just reminds me of the Walkerton inquiry in in Ontario in, I believe it was 2000, where application of manure to some crop fields above the water supply leached out into a well and into the drinking water supply, resulting in seven deaths and over 2,000 people becoming sick from E. coli. And unfortunately, the result was the focus of the inquiry was on water treatment. Well, how do we treat this water? Turns out that the people who are responsible for the water treatment were performing their job negligently. They weren't testing the water properly. They didn't report on it properly. They They didn't respond to elevated E. coli levels. And so that was the focus of the inquiry. However, what I found shocking was that there was very little focus on the rancher, the person who created this manure, applied it to the environment, and have it leach into the water supply, right? Because of the impact that manure can have on our water bodies environmentally as well, and it impacts wildlife, not just humans, but the focus was on the water treatment. And the reason why was because the rancher, the person who was responsible for managing the manure, did everything right, followed the legislation. There was nothing he did wrong legally. So, of course, 
the inquiry focused on something else. But that just goes to show that even when everything goes as planned, you know, the consequences can be devastating in terms of those impacts. When we look at the most polluting foods in terms of emissions of water pollution, certainly when you look at the chart, animal products dominate the top half of the chart, plant products dominate the bottom half. And so it's really easy for consumers to say, well, if I want to reduce the amount of water pollution in my diet, I could lean towards or trend towards more more plant foods. So that's water pollution. I guess the other one is air pollution, uh, which we touched on briefly, but that's a result of pesticides and dust and things in the atmosphere. But of course, there's greenhouse gas emissions. And um, certainly the top emitters are all animal products and the lowest emitters are all plant products with nuts being the lowest. Um, so in terms of pollution, I, I think that's a good synopsis. Yeah, and um, just going back to that deforestation point is that the forests are what help take some of that carbon dioxide out of the environment and will help prevent this rise, this one point, getting up to that 1.5 threshold by the, the Paris Agreement. Yes, I certainly agree. I certainly agree. And it will go a long way to promoting biodiversity, as E.O. Wilson famously said before he passed away, I believe in 2020 or 2021, one of my heroes in ecology said that um, only if we're to save half of planet Earth, set set aside half of our planet, are we to save the immensity of life forms that compose it. Essentially, he was saying, if we continue utilizing so much space on the land, we will soon lose most of the species composing life on Earth, which is a devastating blow. And he wrote Half Earth, promoted the campaign Half Earth, which in BC, um, we've dedicated ourselves to the stepping stone of protecting or preserving 30% of our province. It's a stepping stone to Half Earth. But if we're going to get to half Earth and save most of the species that compose life on Earth, I don't see how we can do that with our current mode of of agriculture. Because, of course, half of the planet, half of the habitable land on the planet, the other part is glacier and sand, barren areas, um, half of the habitable area of the planet is dedicated to agriculture. And 80% of that is for animal agriculture, yeah, can which you say only that, say produces... That, say about that again, because that's a really big stat. Half of... Half of all the habitable land on planet Earth is used for agriculture. And 80% of that is used for animal agriculture, which only produces about 16 to 20% of global calories. You can see how inefficient that is. And with that, comes deforestation to make space for pasture. Pasture, by the way, is lands used for grazing, foraging for livestock, namely cattle, sheep, and goats, and they graze grass. And typically, pasture is one of two things. It's either grasslands or it's land that was converted to pasture from shrubland or forest or, or something like that. And, you know, the Ranchers are heralding themselves these days and marketing themselves as stewards of the grasslands without acknowledging that they've taken so much other land and converted it to pasture and then play on this idea of being stewards of the grasslands as if all the lands that they're using is grasslands and as if they are stewards of the grasslands. Grasslands are some of the most ecologically valuable threatened, misunderstood ecosystems on planet Earth. And we've lost a lot of wildlife in those grasslands to cattle. We're literally replacing wildlife with livestock at a staggering rate. In the Great Plains, we've replaced bison with cattle, bison who have numerous benefits to ecosystems over cattle, um, say that we're mimicking 
the bison with cattle, although very imperfectly. We could get into that another time if you like. But we we are replacing our wildlife with livestock, especially the apex predators too, which we have extirpated from many of our ecosystems, especially on pastures, because they threaten the economic product, right? Which is cattle. So they want to remove these apex predators who make ecosystems resilient. And we're only starting to understand this now. And we don't understand. I don't think we'll ever understand the complex nature by which apex predators make ecosystems resilient. They do so through what ecologists call trophic cascades. And the very simple model of a trophic cascade would be um, live or apex predator would manage herbivore populations and then that manages vegetation. But only until recent years did we start to realize that those impacts reverberate through the ecosystems much deeper and broader than we ever thought before. It impacts pest and disease control. It impacts carbon sequestration, soil health, microbiota, insects. So much broader than we ever thought before. And we think about cattle replacing bison. Well, they might replicate in some very imperfect ways grazing on the grasslands of our Great Plains. But that's about it, right? As some of the earliest explorers of North America would document it as when an apex predator killed a bison on the landscape, created this bastion of biodiversity, not only putting all of that organic biomass back into the soil of the dead um, animal, but it brought in birds, it brought in scavengers like coyotes and all these other foxes, swift foxes, and all, all these other animals. And it created this big bastion of biodiversity there, something that the cattle industry is really trying to protect itself against. So that's one thing. But if we took a survey of all the terrestrial biomass on planet Earth and looked at mammals, and it's the same story with birds and 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 uh, fish too, who, who we've seen huge declines in marine life over the past century. But just in terms of mammalian biomass, 36% is humans on planet Earth. 60% is livestock, leaving only 4% of mammalian biomass, terrestrial mammalian biomass on planet Earth, wildlife. Wow. And here we are, having all kinds of animal agriculture proponents step forward saying, we are doing all this great stuff for biodiversity and so forth. I just think that's objectively false, as they've been replacing natural wildlife with livestock for over a century. I mean, four decades after livestock were introduced to British Columbia, where I am, 90% of our grasslands were overgrazed. By the 1920s, they called the Southern Interior a dust bowl. And to think that we're improving biodiversity through cattle, I think, is laughable. And from what point of reference? You could take any number of disturbed sites, overgraved sites, and reduce the level of grazing, and you'll see vast improvements. And there's people all over the place saying, well, look how great my livestock are for the environment, taking a degraded site and then just grazing a little bit over it and showing all of these improvements. I think that's just the frame of reference is false. Yeah. So it really sounds like if people don't want to go 100% plant-based, if they just eliminate eating cows, that that would make a, a massive difference. I believe it would make a massive difference. It would certainly reduce the amount of agricultural land needed. And our world and data, they had a really good visual for that. They found that if we reduced, if we were to eat no beef or mutton, beef from dairy cows would still be included. We would reduce the total amount of agricultural land from 4.13 billion hectares to 2.21 billion hectares. We could essentially rewild almost 2 billion hectares of 
of mostly pasture. This would also slightly reduce the amount of cropland used as well from, let's see, about 1.23 or so million hectares or billion hectares of cropland to 1.17 billion hectares. And that would also re reduce the amount of pasture from 2.89 billion hectares to 1.04 billion hectares. Now, if you were to exclude all beef, mutton, and dairy, you would get rid of all pasture. You wouldn't need it. You could reintroduce wildlife. Wildlife who co-evolved with these ecosystems to provide that ecological niche of grazing, what, what cattle ranchers are always, well, the land needs to be grazed. Well, whose ecological niche did they steal that from, right? Like it was wildlife. It was elk, pronghorns, uh, deer, moose. So if there was no beef, mutton, or dairy, we would essentially reduce the amount of land use for agriculture from 4 billion hectares to 1.1 billion hectares. Massive amount. And that would reduce, albeit ever so slightly, the amount of cropland needed. But if we were to go to a vegan diet, we would only need about 1 billion hectares of land. That would actually reduce the amount of cropland required overall. And what you often hear uh, the beef industry state is that the pastures we use, they're marginal agricultural lands. You can't use it for anything else. So here we are, we're producing calories through this marginal land that you couldn't grow crops on. And if we weren't doing that, you'd have to expand your croplands. There was a, a show on CBC not all that long ago where the beef industry was stating this as a matter of fact, that yeah, if we stopped grazing cattle, then you'd have to expand cropland into these precious ecosystems that we're preserving. Well, that's just subjectively false. Joseph Pord, author of the largest study to date on the environmental impacts of food, recently stated this year, even in a conference, that if, if the planet was to go plant-based, we could reduce the amount of cropland currently used by 20%. But as a lot of people have pointed out, the way we use our cropland sterilizes soils. We're doing these big industrial farming practices to increase yield of each acre. So we're trying to maximize these yields at the expense of soil health and so forth. What we could do is just not reduce the amount of cropland at all and do more responsible farming. So we don't need pasture at all for food security. Um, we could probably make improvements we could feed everybody a healthy diet, plant-based diet, and we would have an excess of cropland, which we could then use for innovative agricultural farming and research, promote agrodiversity, promote more regenerative farming practices, more permaculture, more um, agroforestry, and more things like this, and not have to worry about that yield threshold as much as we do today. Well, I can't believe we're already out of time. I think this is a very informative podcast for a lot of people who maybe just thought that people talking about the environment and the impacts of animal agriculture were just things that people said without any real data behind it. But as people can hear, there there is a huge impact. And the choices that you make make a big difference. And one person, as we talked about earlier, can make a difference. And one last little point that I, I want to just put out there for people thinking about this is that a lot of times we wait until it's too late to make a change. We'll wait until we're really overweight before we're going to change you know, the way that we eat. We wait until the planet is in complete peril before it's time to make a change. So how can we as a group of people and how can you as an individual try to plan in advance so that it's not too late? And that is that psychology piece, I think, is, is a, a missing piece that needs to be talked about more when it comes to making big changes for our individual health and also for the planet and for the animals. I couldn't agree more. And every little shift helps. So Corey, where can people find your book and more about you? You can find our book at amazon.ca or .com or at your local bookstore. If it's not available in your local bookstore, please request it from them and they'll, they'll bring it in quite easily. 
You can find us on plant-poweredprotein.com or coreydavis.ca. You can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. My email is up on my website. You could get a hold of me through plantpoweredprotein.ca as well. And I'd be happy if you reached out to me and I, I could certainly engage with some of your audience if they have further questions for me. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. You bet. I hope you enjoyed that podcast episode and that you learned a lot. I would love to hear what you learned. Link us up on social media. Do a little Instagram story and tag myself and Corey so that we know what your key takeaways were. And so you can share the importance of those takeaways with other people. Big thanks in advance for your following of the podcast. And if you haven't hit that follow button, make sure that you do so so you don't miss out on some other great guests we have in the works. I can't believe this show has been going for over six and a half years. That is wild. It has been such a great forcing function for learning for me, such a great accelerator. I hope that you have gotten as much benefit out of it as I have. I'm looking forward to continuing to record, to start recording again some brand new episodes and to continue my process of broadening all the things that I know. Thanks to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon and PayPal. That's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. If you want to kick a few bucks per month to the show, that goes to paying my amazing production team, my editor Roma and my production team over at Palm Tree Pod. As always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.